Hello and welcome to the BICOM podcast. I'm Jack Omer Jackman, BICOM Research Associate, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Oren Kessler. Oren is a journalist and political analyst based in Tel Aviv. He has served as Deputy Director for Research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies in Washington, Research Fellow at the Henry Jackson Society in London, Arab Affairs Correspondent for the Jerusalem Post, and as an editor and translator at Haaretz English Edition. He's the author of the book, newly released in English, Palestine 1936, The Great Revolt and the Roots of the Middle East Conflict. The book argues powerfully that events in mandatory Palestine between 1936 and 1939 have shaped the subsequent history of the conflict for Israelis and for Palestinians. Called the definitive study by Michael Oren, the book identifies the revolt as the true first intifada, an uprising which laid the ground for the Arab defeat in 1947-48, and which has set the tone of the conflict for almost a century. Oren, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. That's our pleasure. Let's start by sketching for our listeners the context leading up to the revolt and then and then the broad outline of events. Well, I don't think I need to go into all of the details. I have a feeling that you're of, of the, the pre-revolt history. I have a feeling that your listeners are probably familiar with at least the broad outlines of the the milestones of the the the, uh, the history of, of Zionism. There is, of course, there were the first waves of Zionist immigration in the late 19th century. There was the famous Balfour Declaration uh, of 1917. And then, of course, the British mandate began in the early 1920s. Uh, but what's particularly salient and relevant to my story is, is the rise of Hitler in January 1933, the rise of other anti-Semitic movements in Europe, which really had the effect of turbocharging Jewish immigration to this land. The In the first half of the 1930s, the Jewish population of this, of this land of Mandate Palestine doubles. And in uh 1935 36 it's approaching about 300,000 in a in a population of about a million in the mandate so the jews are approaching uh 30% of the population and it's it becomes quite clear to to the arabs uh both the more educated intelligentsia of the cities and even uh, you know, relatively humble farmers. They're they're perceptive enough to realize that if things go on this way, uh, the Jews will be a majority uh, before long. So there's in in late 1935, the uh, there's a jihadi preacher by the uh, whose name will probably be familiar to many of your listeners. It's is Adina al Qassam. Qassam, of course, has lent his name to Hamas's armed wing and to the some of the first rockets that that Hamas uh, fired on Israel and this preacher is is uh, preaching jihad in a certain mosque in Haifa to the urban Muslim poor of Haifa and uh long story short he is assassinated he he actually his his followers kill a Jewish policeman by the name of Moshe Rosenfeld in 19 late 1935 and he becomes a wanted man and he is killed by uh, British forces in what is now the Northern West Bank. And so this, uh, and and uh, basically he becomes kind of the first Palestinian uh, martyr, if you like. He's the first martyr icon in the Palestinian pantheon. And then a few, uh, a few months after he's killed, his acolytes, 
take their revenge on uh, a couple of Jews driving through the Nablus Tulkarim area. They ambush their car uh, and uh, they kill two two Jews. And these this is often seen as sort of the the opening shots of the revolt. So that's just a very very express. Uh, version of the historical events leading up to the revolt that broke out in April 1936. Thank you. You and I have spoken previously about how striking it is that yours is the first English analysis of the revolt for the general reader. Explain a little for us why that's so surprising. In other words, why is this episode so important to those concerned with Israeli-Palestinian past and present, and, and perhaps speculate a little for us why you think it's been relatively ignored. Well, this is a I, this is a hugely formative uh, three years, 1936 to 1939, the period of the Arab Revolt. This is a hugely decisive and seminal period for the Jews uh, of this country and Jewish history, more broadly speaking, certainly for the Arabs of this country, for the conflict and attempts to resolve the conflict. Uh, if we look just from a Jewish perspective for a moment, this is, um, or really from, from a Jewish and an Arab perspective, this is the this is when the uh, notion of a two-state solution is first put on the table by, uh, by the international community, by the international power with the most sway over this, uh, what, what goes on in this land, namely the British Empire in this period. This is this is when a when partition first appears on the international agenda, a two-state solution that includes a Jewish state and everything that means. So not just a Jewish national home as promised in the Balfour Declaration, but a Jewish state. This is first promulgated in the famous Peel Partition Plan of 1937. Uh, this is when the Jews become a military force to be reckoned with. This is when the Haganah goes from being a glorified network of night watchmen to the seed of a, a Jewish army. Uh, this is an extremely formative event for Palestinian Arab identity in which really almost all strands of Arab society unite behind the leadership of, of the Grand Mufti, Haj Amin al-Husseini, uh, and, uh, and, and unite against uh, in a common effort against a common foe, namely uh, the Zionist enterprise and its imperial uh, handmaiden or facilitator, the, uh, the the British Empire. So, uh, in all of these ways, it's it's a, an extremely uh, crucial period, and it is rather puzzling to me why it hasn't really gotten its due in English. There are some very academic works. Uh, there are um, there are a, a couple of books in Hebrew, but in English, it's really been uh, confined to uh, to academia at this point. There's a little bit in Arabic. But there's been no general history of this revolt and everything that emanated from it um, for, for again for a general audience and and it is a, a, a fair and it, it is a fair and a fascinating question why not and I, I sort of speculate in the book that from a Jewish or Zionist perspective I think it it perhaps goes a little bit against the 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 stories that that um, Many Jews and Israelis like to. Uh, every, every national community has its its narrative and its and its stories, and the uh, it's the the Jewish Zionist one is a rather forward moving tale of persecution and state building and the 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 agony of of, of the Holocaust and then the redemption of uh, statehood. That's a very express express version of this uh, history, and I think 
perhaps a concerted large-scale uh, sort of uprising against that forward-moving tale is perhaps uh, an unwelcome blip in the narrative arc. And then for the Arab side, just briefly, and I quote uh, Professor Mustafa Kabha in the book to this effect. He's a professor at the Open University of Israel. And he he's written that uh, in the Palestinian perspective, really the revolt has been sidelined and marginalized by the primacy and the centrality of the Nakba. And in and if, from a Palestinian perspective, if you're focusing on 1947, 48, 49, you can really, it's the story of victimhood in which the Palestinians were victimized by the Jews, by uh, European imperialism, by their fellow Arabs who didn't save them from, from the Zionist uh, menace as they see it. Whereas dealing with 1936 to 39, in Professor Kabha's words, uh, requires a lot more soul searching because the initial unity that I spoke about earlier really dissolves in as the as the revolt goes on and 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 kind of there's a convulsion of arab infighting and score settling that is quite a bit less comfortable uh in terms of uh, the palestinian sort of um narrative i suppose thank you Aaron. Let, let's talk britain for for a minute i was at an event uh, a panel event at the israeli embassy in london this week and the consensus was that we're living in a very positive era for Anglo-Israeli relations, that there's perhaps never been such a confluence of interests, of shared interests and, and values. But obviously, unlike with most of its diplomatic relationships, Israel's relationship with Britain is linked inextricably with the legacy of the Mandate era. From the huge amount of research you did for the book, how do you assess British interests and motivations in that Mandate era? What, what drove British policy then? And if you would, to what extent do you think its mandate experience affected the British side of the, the relationship over the next 75 years? So I think much of British Palestine policy and, and Zionist policy, if you like, uh, was really a direct result of, of the Balfour Declaration and the feeling that this, this promise was, was made in the eyes of the world and it had to be uh, upheld in one way or another, and there was this concept. There was this, you know, this concept of, of 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 fair play, and a promise made had to be kept in some way uh, or another. And and I, one of the most fascinating things that I found in my research was the secret, uh, the secret testimonies from the Peel Commission from 1936 and 37, and these had been kept classified by the British government for 80 years until 2017 and were very quietly declassified. And one of the most interesting testimonies that I found there were from was from none other than David Lloyd George, the British prime minister during, uh, during the issuance of the Balfour Declaration. And he's asked quite directly why the declaration was given. And, uh, and I, I wrote a piece about this for Fathom uh, whose title was A Dangerous People to Quarrel, Quarrel With, which was a quote from Lloyd George's testimony in which he essentially says, look, this was the, 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 the midst of the First World War. The situation was very grim on all fronts. And uh, basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, he basically says we needed the Jews' help, that they're very powerful around the world, particularly in two places that were very important to us for the war effort, namely Russia and America. And that the Balfour Declaration had the effect of really rallying Jews 
uh, worldwide to the Allied cause. And, and had we not done it, perhaps the Germans would have done uh, the same thing and would have gotten a lot of Jewish assistance in various ways by doing so. And then he proceeds to uh, to name various ways in which the Jews uh, that supposedly have such outsized influence in in Washington and in uh, Moscow then uh, proceeded to help the war effort. And Lloyd George basically from from that period and really for decades after was a staunch Zionist and he insisted that the declaration had more than uh, paid for itself. So basically, I think that declaration carried a lot of weight, that there was the idea that it had to be honored in one way or another. And there were also strategic interests for Britain and Palestine. Britain, uh, Palestine is sort of the, the just strategically located, as we know, it was it's on the way to, to India. It's where the Iraq oil pipeline had its terminus. Uh, the British built a large port in Haifa and and uh, large rail depots and and airfields and uh, so for, for for both of those reasons I think uh, the Balfour Declaration and strategic reasons uh, those were really what drove British policy at the time and then just briefly to answer the second part of your question you asked how the mandate affected the British side of the relationship since then and I think it's important to remember that the 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 Arab revolt that I write about in this book, was followed just about five years after, uh, starting in 1944, with a, a Jewish revolt. The one of the I devote an entire chapter in my book to the famous or infamous White Paper of 1939, which all but shuttered the gates to uh, Palestine to the the persecuted Jews of Europe. And it was really at that point that David Ben Gurion and, and and much of the Zionist leadership realized that the British Zionist partnership was essentially uh, over and that that kind of reckoning with the British was postponed because the Second World War broke out and Ben-Gurion had his famous formulation that we shall fight Hitler as if there's no white paper, we shall fight the white paper as if there's no, uh, we, sh we shall fight the, uh, the white paper as if there's no war, we shall fight uh, the war as if there's no white paper. I'm sure I'm mangling that, but that was the the idea so that reckoning with britain was was postponed for the the years of the second world war but as the particularly after the battle of el alamein and towards uh 1943-44 when it was clear that the tide was turning in the allies allies favor the the jews kind of uh, uh first the revisionists but really the then the mainstream zionists turned their attention towards britain and towards the betrayal of the white paper and towards their grievances against Britain. And I think what I encountered again and again in British soldiers' uh, testimonies was that, you know, the Arab revolt was 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 kind of good, clean fun in a way. It was not to say that it wasn't bloody, because it absolutely was. There were 500 Jews killed in this revolt and about half that many uh, British service people. But the idea was that you often heard was that the Arabs were fighting fair. But once the Jews launched their revolt, in 1944, up until 1948, really, 47, 48, um, that it was quite dirty, that the Jews didn't play fair. And I think that caused a lot of resentment uh, among British uh, servicemen who were stationed here. Thank you. Let's, let's move now to the Palestinians. And let's start with the place the revolt holds in the Palestinian consciousness. How, how is its iconography, and perhaps, perhaps even how are some of its tactics used 
both by Palestinian terror groups, but also by more peaceful or, or mainstream demographics. Well, I mentioned is Adin al-Qassam earlier. He, of course, is an, an, an icon for uh, for Palestinians, particularly Hamas, but Palestinians in general to this to this day. Uh, but he's not he's not the only one. There are folk songs that still celebrate the revolt. There are um, schools still named after after militant leaders of the revolt. Um, you know, even more recently, the in in 2021, in the last round of in the in the last major Gaza war. Uh, I'm sure you remember that 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 particular uh, war extended to the the battlefield of of social media, and uh, Palestinian and pro-Palestinian social media was all abuzz with comparisons to 1936 because in 1936 there was a six-month general strike in which the Arabs of this land refused all contact with the Jewish economy and the British economy for six full months. This is even to this day one of the longest general strikes anywhere in history. And this was a source of tremendous pride for, for the Arabs of, of Palestine. Uh, and that's actually, it was that strike that uh, in many ways prompted the, the Royal Commission, the Peel Commission that, that I spoke about earlier. Uh, and um, and so the, in, in 2021, there was a day-long strike from, from, from the river to the sea, really, from Gaza through Israel proper and the West Bank. And Palestinian social media was all abuzz with with comparisons to to 1936. So, in, in in that's just one example of how kind of the revolt still continues to to cast its its shadow over um, over the Palestinian discourse. Even though, kind of, I think a real reckoning with the effects of of the the legacy of the revolt, as I mentioned earlier. Is still something that can that often makes Palestinians a little bit uncomfortable because of that infighting that I discussed. I think the symbols and the icons of the revolt still very much live on in in Palestinian uh, uh, memory, collective memory. And a sort of related question: I know you you listened with interest to Mahmoud Abbas's uh, Nakba Day speech at the UN a couple of weeks ago, and I'm sure will have shared the concern of of most of, uh, of our listeners uh, some of its content. But unlike most of us, you will have had a sense of the of, of the sort of historic parallels. Um, what, can we see parallels in in what he said with 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 the revolt and some of the ideas expressed at that time? Well, as it happens, Abbas was born five days before Qassam was was uh, killed in 1935, which is uh, this is another reminder that this isn't ancient history. This is this revolt was in the lifetime of. Of, of some of us who are still uh, alive today, uh, Abbas, uh, you know, it was it was quite a discouraging, disappointing speech. It was really rehashing some talking points that really have little to no basis in history and really should have been uh, thrown in the in in the sort of historiographical trash bin a, a while ago. He blamed the U.S. Uh, the U.S. and the U.K. for for the Nakba uh, in particular because they sent Jews here, quote unquote, for their own colonial goals and because they wanted to, quote, get rid of their Jews. Now, it's the, I, I, I can somehow I can understand wanting to blame Britain. It's if I were Palestinian, I, I suppose I'd probably have quite a bit of resentment towards Britain for the entire the whole Balfour uh, experiment, but the, the, the including the U.S. in there is just kind of 
the U.S. was barely a player here until, uh, you know, until 47, 48. The U.S. wasn't even part of the League of Nations, which handed Britain uh, the mandate, for example. It was, the, the, and, you know, the, the amount of, uh, the number of British and American Jews who, who moved here was vanishingly small. There were a few high-profile uh, figures like Judah Magnus, the head of Hebrew University, uh, but, uh, but, but, but very few. It was really the, the the European power most responsible for driving up the number of Jews immigrating to the to, to Palestine was, of course, Nazi Germany and the other anti-Semitic uh, uh, movements and governments in Europe. And and of course, I probably don't need to remind your listeners that Hajj Amin famously uh, allied himself to Nazi Germany and to Hitler uh, throughout the Second World War and even before uh, the, the first contacts made between the Mufti and Nazi Germany came in 1933. It's all it's all there in my book. Uh, and so I, as I, I tweeted at the time, I wrote, uh, you know, Mahmoud Abbas seems determined to carry on Hajj Amin and company's decades old tradition of Palestinian self-sabotage in international arenas. You know, Hajj Amin really could not uh, take yes for an answer. Even uh, he, he he rejected the Peel Commission's partition plan, of course, but even in 1939, when the British issued this white paper, which went so far in the direction of Arab demands, Haji Amin basically went against all advice and rejected that white paper, in large part because he had fled the country at that point as a wanted man, and the white paper didn't allow for him to come back as, as a victorious hero. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's I think Haji Amin set a fairly unfortunate precedent for Palestinian leadership, and in that particular speech, I think, Mahmoud Abbas pro proved himself a worthy, a worthy heir to to Hajj Amin in that instance. Indeed, I mean, with your your analyst rather than historians hat on, how and given the importance of the diplomatic relationship with it with with the U.S. Um, less so with Britain, perhaps, but still, I mean, how do you explain politically uh, uh, the sort of tactics behind a speech like that? Well, I think he was speaking to a a domestic audience i think he, he was trying to burnish his uh quote-unquote resistance bona fides um you know vis-a-vis -vis hamas and and islamic jihad and 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 maybe trying to win some points from uh, one wonders who he was trying to win points from uh, syria iran uh, but i think it was mainly for domestic consumption i think it's you know the the those nakba day festivities were basically uh, maybe boycotted is a strong word, but but uh, U.S. no U.S. officials went to the went to that event. No British officials went. No German officials, as far as I know. So he was speaking to a very friendly audience. He was he was preaching to the choir uh, and just rehashing a lot of tired and frankly, frankly, untrue tropes. Um, you know, the Israelis and Palestinians have very different historical memories. That's that's natural, that's normal, it's understandable. They're not going to agree on, there are many things they won't agree on, but there are some things that are simply uh, factually true or untrue. And, um, you know, this notion that the, the US and the UK just wanted to dump their Jews here in Palestine is, is fairly delusional. <laughs> and if we, if we can see, if we can see in that speech a kind of inheritance of the, of the Husseini school, if you, if you will, I mean, does you, what does your book, reveal about but sort of you know potential paths not taken in in in, uh, in the course of Palestinian nationalism 
Well, one of the one of the characters who I you know, I should say I really wanted this book to be uh, a, a book about people, and that, that that may sound a bit a bit cliched, but I really wanted to reveal momentous historical events through individual human beings and and their stories um, and their relationships. And one of the Arab figures who I spend a lot of time with is a man named Musa Alami who uh, was from a is from one of the the great Jerusalem families and was probably the first Palestinian Arab to attend Cambridge he was a very educated very uh, brilliant man by man by most accounts uh, and he was a committed Arab nationalist um he was a lawyer he actually worked in the in the mandate administration he was a committed nationalist and yet had many friends among the British and many friends among the Jews one of whom was none other than David Ben-Gurion. And in the early and mid-1930s, excuse me, in uh, Alami and Ben-Gurion met regularly um, uh, to try to figure out some sort of modus vivendi. And they met uh, sometimes at Alami's home, sometimes on more uh, neutral grounds, and they uh, sometimes at the home of Mo Moshe Shertok, the kind of number two man in the Zionist uh, in, the, in the Zionist leadership. And they, despite Alami and Ben Gurion's very different political aspirations, they met in an atmosphere of mutual respect and an atmosphere of um, warmth, even. And this is a relationship that lasted for for decades. And so it's one it it does raise one of these great uh, what if questions. What if someone like Musa Alami or even uh you know so, someone like the great rivals to the to the Husseini camp of the Mufti in this period or the Nashashibis uh the the Nashashibi family who were generally considered more more moderate more willing to work with the British and indeed with the Jews than than the Husseinis and one does wonder what might have happened had someone else been placed at the head of the Palestinian Arab leadership and 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 I, I say placed for a reason because it was the British specifically Herbert Samuel the first high commissioner for Palestine and a, and a Jew and a Zionist I might add who chose Haja, who chose Amin al-Husseini to be Grand Mufti to be head of the Supreme Muslim Council and vested him with this tremendous power and we can only wonder what might have happened how things might have gone differently had there been someone else in that position someone who might have accepted the partition plan of 1937 someone who might have accepted the white paper or the un partition plan in 1947 perhaps there would have been no palestinian refugee crisis uh, perhaps there would have been even no war of 1948 and we can we can we can let our imaginations uh, run wild but there were absolutely attempts at coexistence and one of the more negative legacies of this period that I'm writing about is that it's it's the period in which really the the self-segregation between the two communities became very much more cemented and on the Arab side it was really Haj Amin who was enforcing his very intransigent vision on kind of the wider Arab community and anyone who dared step out of line and try to contemplate reaching some sort of agreement with Zionists would tended to find himself uh, assassinated or um in some kind of some other kind of very serious trouble so unfortunately i think uh, the mufti really set the tone of intransigence which other palestinian leaders have 
oftentimes been forced to um, to match. Let's finish with the with the ways in which you, you think the experience of the revolt informed the development of of Jewish Israeli society. Can we see its legacy on the Israeli side over the following eighty five odd years, perhaps even today? So the the mainstream uh, Zionist leadership in this period clung to a policy called havlaga in Hebrew, which which means self restraint. Um, and uh, the, the 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 revisionist Jabotinskyite movement at the time had a rather different view, and they had a much more eye for an eye sort of approach. But the the havlaga was the 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 watchword for the mainstream uh, Zionists under Ben Gurion. They wanted to show the British that they could be trusted with weapons and that they would thereby be. Um, included in the British security apparatus. And that's exactly what happened. That's what led to this massive training and arming of, of Jews by the British and the, the, the foundation of, of the Jewish army that I discussed earlier. But uh, this, this key word, Havlaga, appears again and again, typically in a pejorative sense. So in the first intifada of the late 1980s and the second intifada of the early 2000s, you know, proponents of a harsher response against Arab violence would typically accuse their uh, allegedly soft Israeli counterparts of havlaga, right, uh, of sort of sacrificing uh, Jewish blood and not and not taking the fight uh, to the enemy. I think there's still a real debate in uh, Israeli society over the, the, the debate over restraint versus retaliation, the debate over revenge, really, I think is very much uh, alive and well. I think there's still a heated discussion about what it means to have Jewish military power, what it means to have Jewish sovereignty. I think there's still very lively and heated debates uh, between sort of ideological purity and pragmatism, between maximalism and compromise. Uh, and so I think on the Israeli side, as as much as on the Palestinian side, in many ways, this this uh, and this is one of the sort of central arguments of the book. In many, that on the on the Israeli, as much as the Palestinian side, this this revolt very much uh, rages on. Oren, thank you very much for being with us today. I think you'll have inspired a lot of people to seek out the book and delve deeper into this this fascinating and, and pivotal episode. Many thanks indeed. Thank you so much, Jack. I really enjoyed this. Thank you too to our listeners. Um, we look forward to bringing you another Bicom podcast very soon. Mm -hmm.